are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, this is towards the end of our New Testaments. It's on page 998 of the Pew Bibles. As we have begun, as our second sermon on the book of Titus, we'll begin working through this. Paul's instructions to a fellow minister, this man named Titus who's ministering, serving on the island of Crete. Paul had to leave, wasn't able to spend as much time there as maybe he would have preferred. And so he's now sending instructions, encouraging Titus to be faithful in the ministry against the pressures of the culture around them. So we get an insight into what they were struggling with, but also the hope that they have and the hope that we have today as well. Let's pay heed now to the reading of God's word from Titus. We'll be reading verses one and two, but our sermon will be from from verse two. This evening, hear now the word of the Lord from Titus chapter one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul, as he's introducing himself and his ministry to Titus and the church in Crete, he tells them from the get-go, he is an apostle carrying a promise. He has a promise to proclaim to others. He is telling the world what God has promised to do. Last time he spoke of his intention in verse one to build up believers in their faith. That was the whole goal of his ministry. Why he cared so deeply to proclaim the gospel was that faith would be built up in God's people. He wanted to teach them the truth, grounding their faith in what is true and desiring out of that faith to see a life of godliness lived out. We see in verse two, as we come here this evening, one of the effects of this faith and trust in Christ is a real Christian hope. We have a faith in hope. And we must be clear what a biblical Christian hope is. We ordinarily use the term hope with a sense of aspiration or desire, maybe sometimes even wishful thinking. I hope I don't have to talk to Aunt Sally on Thursday. We have hopes and desires, but that's not the Christian hope that scripture speaks of. A Christian hope, a biblical hope, is a confident expectation. When Paul writes of the hope we have of eternal life, he says it is a a confident expectation that we have. The Christian hope orients us to the future. We look to the future. There's a confident expectation of what God will do. Of course, the future has not yet happened. And so we are called now to take God at his word. We must hear his promise, listen to his promise, 
and let that sink in and root us as we believe in him. Our hope flourishes when we trust God's promise of salvation in Christ. And Paul encourages our hope, this confident expectation, as he highlights three truths in this little verse this evening. The first truth is the promise. The second is the promisor. And third, the plan. We have the promise, the promisor, and the plan. So we'll look at these this evening. First, let's look at the promise itself. It's easy for us in the midst of day-to-day life, the obligations, the demands, to forget the big picture, to lose sight of the ultimate things. And right here at the beginning of the letter, Paul reminds us of the big things, of eternal life itself. He reminds us what is at stake for all people. We read earlier of Christ himself speaking on the final day. There are two camps, the left and the right, and the right are welcomed into the everlasting kingdom and the ones on the left are sent to everlasting punishment. This is the future for all of us. These are the two outcomes, the two ultimate ends. Should go back and listen to Pastor Wright's sermons. He just finished preaching a small series on heaven and hell. These two ultimate realities, heaven and hell. I think it's so easy to float through this life fixed on this world. We forget how damning our sin is. We live like the rest of the world. And so let this reminder of ultimate things shake us out of our stupor to be reminded of the greatest truth. And the promise is this. The promise of which Paul speaks of is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved from everlasting destruction. If you trust in him for salvation, eternal life is yours. It is a confident expectation that all those who look to Christ have. A confident expectation of life eternal. John tells us why he writes Not only his gospel, but his letters. He says, I write these things to you to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write that you would believe in Christ, that you would know you would have eternal life. You would know Jesus, that you would believe in him, trust in him, and thus you will have eternal life. So he fixes our gaze upon Jesus. As we look at him, then we are assured of this great hope. We grow in hope that we would know eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? What is this? Well, I think often Christian portray or at least think of eternal life as some kind of boring, static, sleepy existence while we're floating in the clouds playing our harps and, and playing Frisbee with our halos. But this is not the real eternal life of which Scripture speaks. It is not some disembodied existence. It is not some ethereal place that we go. It is physical. Eternal life is as real as this world because indeed we will be physical. Our bodies and souls will be reunited upon the resurrection of Christ and we will live in a physical new heavens and new earth. And the term eternal life denotes many things, but I'll highlight two things this evening. Eternal life itself, one, speaks of the quantity of life. Eternal will be forever. We'll have no end. 
this life moving in the future forever and ever and ever. And that's an astounding thing because we can hardly wrap our, our, our mind around the length of span of 100 years, much less, much less eternity itself. So there's a quantity of, of eternality that we will live forever in God's blessed land. But there's not just quantity that's denoted by the term eternal life. It's not just speaking of time, but it's speaking of a quality. Because this life is a life of abundance. This life is a life of fulfillment. The fittingness of this life to our nature. We were meant for this. In this life, we're always bumping up against difficulties. We're always feeling that this world is not our home. Sin has come and invaded this world and it is not how it should be. All of these groanings and and yearnings of life is not quite right will be gone. Life will have fullness and abundance. Christ says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. An abundant, overflowing fullness in the presence of God and God's people. Sometimes we get a small hint in this life of what abundant life is like. Sometimes maybe you're around a certain person, you just feel energized, you're, you're curious, you feel alive. Maybe you've done something, an accomplishment or something, and in that moment you feel alive. I think of Eric Liddell, the Olympic runner. The movie Chariots of Fire was about his experience. He won the gold medal in the 400-meter sprint at the 1924 Games in Paris. And in the movie, he speaks of what it's like to run, and he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. This little spark of what fullness of life is like. He feels it while running. Maybe you feel it in other ways, this sense of the bounty of life. But right now, Even when we feel most alive in this life, it's but a black and white image of the full color of life that we will experience. There's a quality that we yearn for, a quality that we cannot comprehend even now, this promise of eternal life. So Christian, for for you who look to Christ even this evening, remember this hope that you have, this confident expectation, it is yours. This is God's promise. When you look to Christ, when you remember this promise that God has made to you, you can even now persevere. You have your eye on the goal. You have our eye on the prize. And we can run the race. We can live confidently today because we know the future is secure. What a glorious promise that this is for us as God's people. To those of you who may not be looking to Christ, the non-Christian, you need to know that this is the only promise of a sure future. Even in this life, there is no such thing as a sure promise. Ask Mark Van Drunen, ask Derek Mantell about the stock market. There's no guarantee in this life. 
much less any kind of guarantee that you can get in the life to come apart from Christ. There is no other promise of life after death apart from this one that is made here, the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. You must come to him. You must grasp onto him. You must cling to him with all that you have. Your only comfort must be Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning one. This promise of eternal life is not for you unless you're looking to Christ today. This is a very precious promise, a promise that we all cling to as God's people. But Paul reminds us it's not just the promise that we rely on. It is the promisor, the promisor. Let's consider the second truth, consider the promise. And now he speaks of the promisor. He talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. God, who never lies, has made this promise, this promise of eternal life. God himself has given this. It's not not made up by, by Paul, not made up by the apostles. It's not made up by even Jesus Christ himself. It's not made up by the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, none of them created a promise that we're relying upon. None of the kings of Israel, David and Solomon, none of them, none of the judges, Samuel himself, not even Moses made this promise to us. You can go back through the pages of scripture and no human author gave us this promise. Yes, we reiterate it. Yes, we proclaim it. But this promise comes from God himself. It's not man's promise. It's not something made up by people. I think this is fascinating how Paul talks of God here. He says, God who never lies. It's actually stronger than that. This is God who is not able to lie. God is unable. The the not lying God, it's maybe the most wooden way to translate it. The unlying God. He is not able. He cannot lie. And he has made a promise. Even more than this, Paul is attacking Crete culture. You can skip down to verse 12 and read for a moment. Or Paul's quoting one of the Cretan prophets. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul, inserting this little statement, this little description of what God's character is like, is a direct attack on the culture of the Cretans. It's a word that's not very often used. He basically took this word for liar and put the A at the beginning, the the negating prefix. He's a not liar. He cannot lie. The word for, the word Crete in Greek was turned into a a verb, kreitzo. And literally that that would just mean to play a Cretan, to be a, a Cretan. But it became a synonym for to lie. So you would say, you would use the word in Greek, kreitzo, when you meant somebody was lying. You're speaking of a Cretan, what a Cretan does. They were well known for being liars. 
And so Cretan people cannot be trusted. It was in the water. The culture did not care about truth and the good of others. I think we have reverberations today of this. We're always on the alert for misinformation. We're looking out for fake news, looking for biased reports, shady funding of academic studies, politicians saying one thing and then doing another, or doing one thing and saying another. We're always vetting emails and phone calls to see if they're scams and remembering that no Nigerian priest, uh, no Nigerian king would ever reach out to me to give me money. Like Crete, there's hardly anything in our world that we can trust. We're always trying to discern, is this true or not? And for Crete, their gods were known for lying as well. Their gods played games with one another and played games with people. None of them were reliable. They would say one thing and do something else. They would lie about their whereabouts and what they did. They were tricksters. There was no such thing as a foundation of truth. And so what Paul is saying with this one little word, the unlying God, this one little adjective, he's calling the Cretans and us to see this. Look, you know how exhausting navigating the lies is, but you can stop. You can have confidence. This God who's promised something greater than you could ever imagine, this God does not and indeed cannot lie. And so the promise is made by one who is perfect in character. The one who cannot go back on his word. One who will not void his promise. The one who will be faithful to fulfill it. And so our hope, our confident expectation of eternal life rests upon the perfect character and nature of God himself. We could go on here, but let's move to our third point, the third truth that Paul highlights this evening, and it's the plan. It's the plan. He tells us when this promise was first made. When was it made? It was made before the ages began. This promise was the plan from before creation, before time even existed. This promise was in, this promise did exist. This is not some kind of backup plan. God was not caught on his back feet when sin entered the world. God is not trying to make lemonade out of lemons. This was God's plan from before he created the world. He knew that there would be a fall of mankind and he knew from before the foundation of the world that there would be a people that he would redeem for himself. He knew this promise would bear fruit among the world and those that he would call to himself. And the execution of this plan and this promise has been flawless. And so when you look to Christ, you can have a great confidence that your trusting him was secured and ordained and promised before the world began. We look back and say, this wasn't really me, up to me. This wasn't dependent upon me. This is God's grace from before the foundation of the world, before the ages began. And Paul's hinting at theologically what we call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption where the three persons of the Trinity decreed, covenanted together that the Father would 
elect a people and the son would go and accomplish the redemption that needed to, was needed to secure their salvation. And the Holy Spirit would then apply that salvation to us, be our down payment for the eternal life we will inherit. All persons of the Trinity, decreeing, determining, promising. Salvation from before the foundation of the world was as good as done. It was secure. And so Paul anchors the gospel going forward, not in my own subjective response, although yes, we are called to have faith in Christ, that is necessary, but he roots it ultimately in God's eternal plan before the ages began. And all of this draws our attention. The plan had its culmination in history in Jesus Christ. And that fullness of time when Christ would come to finally do that which was decreed and agreed from before the beginning. And the hope that we have is now bolstered by the fact that Christ has come. We can look back and say, yes, God was faithful in executing the plan. He did come. He did die. The tomb is empty and we have his spirit today. And so we know we are guaranteed a glorious future with him. And so we put our eyes again on Jesus. Our hope is in him. But I ask you, what is your hope practically? What is your expectation, your confident expectation? Where are you putting your trust? Do you have a confident expectation of life after death? Oh, that we would root ourselves in this promise day by day. More than that, in the promisor himself and in this plan that he made before the foundation of the world. Look to Christ for your hope. And in life now, a hopeful person is a secure person. A hopeful person, yes, life is difficult, but would not be this, this, this hopeful person is not so overcome by the difficulties of this life because there's always a confident expectation of a better day, of a better reality, of Christ returning. Because we know that this world, our suffering, our shame does not have the final say. And we will all face death one day. Let us strengthen our hope now by coming back to Christ yet again, by anchoring in these pillars of truth that Paul lays out for us so that as we cross the river Jordan on that day to enter the celestial city, we will do so on that day with great hope. Be preparing yourself now for that day. Be ready in your soul to face your last day on earth with confident expectation of something greater confident in the promise, the promisor, and the plan, and looking to Christ with great joy. Let us look to him in prayer. But Father, we do look to you. It's this great promise that you have made of eternal life. Oh, would we be anchored in that in every trial in this life? Bolster our faith that we would grow in our hope our confident expectation that you are not done working, that we have promised, we have been promised to receive a new heavens and new earth, to dwell with you in a place where there's righteousness only. Prepare us for that day. 
and refine us in this life now through these trials and tribulations that we would grow in our hope for the return of our Savior. In his precious name we pray. information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.